Continuing our discussion on predestination. And I don't have time to recap everything from last week. So I would encourage you, if you didn't get the chance to listen to that sermon, to go to the website this week and listen to it. Especially if some of these things seem a little bit confusing to you or you feel a little bit lost on a couple of these points. But a very quick overview of what we've talked about last week is that predestination is concerned with man's final destination. Okay? Heaven or hell? Ephesians 1.5 says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained, obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we said all faithful Christians, regardless of where they land on this topic, all faithful Christians believe in predestination, but just not all Christians agree on what that means. We talked about the two big bucket views of where, of, in the church and throughout church history. You have the semi-Pelagian view, and you have the Augustinian view. Both views believe God's grace is required for salvation. Both believe that God has chosen who will be saved before the foundations of the world, as it says in Scripture. Both believe that Adam's sin affected man, but with all those things, they mean different things about, about those terms. They don't mean the same thing. They don't think those terms are the same thing. And they disagree on the degree of which Adam's sin affected man. So the semi-Pelagian view, or the Arminian view, as you might have heard it called, says, yes, God chose you, but he did so because of a foreknowledge of what you were going to decide in the future. All right? So the Bible clearly says that he has chosen us before the foundations of the world. So Arminians and Calvinists believe that. But Arminians think... He chose us because he had a foreknowledge of what you were going to decide one day. And so because he saw and he could see in the future what you would decide when presented with the gospel, he chose you before the foundations of the world. He chose you based on how he knew you were going to respond. The Augustinian view, or the Calvinist view, it says that man is so depraved He's so fallen, Adam's sin permeates so much that he is 100% totally dependent on God's grace, even for his initial response to the gospel. So he's unable to say yes to the gospel, apart from God intervening and regenerating him, regenerating his heart, and giving him the gift of faith. Okay, so one, a man could choose, he could decide. Does he want to follow Christ? Does he not want to follow Christ? Calvinists, man couldn't even decide to follow Christ if he wanted to, apart from God intervening there. These two views differ as to what degree did the fall of man affect us. And they also differ on what basis did God choose you before the foundation of the world. Was it foreknowledge, what he saw, or was it something else, as Calvinists believe? And so this morning, I hope to do a few things. We're going to talk about free will. 
we're going to talk about Adam's rebellion, our inability to choose God. We'll give a defense of the Calvinistic view of predestination, and then I want to try to answer the question, why does this matter to me? Because maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't really read theology books. I just, I just want to obey God, and I want to honor him. So do I really need to care about this stuff? Does this really matter to me? Does this affect anything in my daily life? Does this make any difference in my life? And I hope to show you that, yes, this stuff matters. Yes, it makes real differences in how you live your life. So let's begin by discussing free will. Inevitably, when you talk about this topic of predestination, people will ask you, well, then am I just a robot? Do I have no free will? And to answer that question, we need to be clear of what we mean by free will. Because people mean different things about that term. What I think most people mean when they say free will is this sort of humanistic view of free will. A free will where R.C. Sproul, he puts it this way, we have the ability to make choices spontaneously. So the choices that we make, they're not determined or conditioned by anything. They're not, there's no prior prejudice. There's no prior inclination. There's no disposition. It's just, it just comes. We just make the decision. Now, there's a couple problems with this idea of free will. But I'll only talk about one this morning. If the choices that we make are not determined by anything, but they just happen spontaneously, there's no prior inclination, then the claim is essentially this. There's no motivation or reason for that choice. The choice just happens. But that would mean that you could make choices, we could make choices that are totally disconnected from any moral significance or consequence. The Bible never talks about your choices in that way. And you know that choices don't happen like that. They don't just happen. Our choices have moral significance. They're influenced and persuaded by what's going on around us, what's going on inside of us. They're not just these spontaneous things that just happen. But they're motivated by something inside of us. Someone says something mean to you. And so you say something mean to them, and you return evil for evil. Someone says something mean to you, but you decide to love them and speak kindly to them to honor Christ. Both decisions have moral significance. Both are influenced by something. They didn't happen spontaneously. There was some motivation for why you did that. I didn't like that he said that, so I made that comment. I didn't like that he said that, but I wanted to honor Christ, so I spoke kindly to him. Now the reason this idea, this humanistic idea of free will is so enticing is because it presents our will as kind of neutral. It's not good, it's not bad, doesn't prefer the left, doesn't prefer the right, doesn't prefer up, doesn't prefer down, just neutral. But this is not how the Bible talks about man. The Bible never talks about man as being in a neutral state. Man has inclination. He has a bias, he has a prejudice, and that is towards evil. 
That's towards wickedness. That's how the Bible talks about. Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. But the Bible makes it clear in multiple places that the bent of man's heart is towards wickedness. So if the definition of free will that one is using is where our decisions just happen spontaneously, there's no prior inclination, there's no prejudice, there's nothing, then no, we do not have that kind of free will. Because that kind of free will is impossible biblically, and I don't have time to explain it right now, but philosophically, it's impossible as well. Okay? Now Jonathan Edwards has a book called The Freedom of the Will, and in the book he says, I observe that free will is that by which the mind chooses anything. The faculty of the will is that power or principle of mind by which it is capable of choosing. An act of the will is the same as an act of choosing or choice. And you might think, I don't know what that means. That's not how we speak today. Essentially what Edwards is saying is that free will is the mind choosing. The mind and will, though they're separate things, they're connected. And we don't make choices without the mind giving its approval. Okay? We don't make choices spontaneously apart from the mind, but the mind plays a vital role in every decision that you make. Your will is not independent of your mind. You get information presented to you, and in some way you make a choice based on that information. Because your mind has decided that this is the preferred choice in that situation. I go up to the soda fountain. I'm presented with options. I consider which one I believe to taste the best and to make a decision with my mind. I choose Coke, because that's what I prefer right now. I don't like Coke Zero. I don't like Mountain Dew. So I'm going to go with Coke. It doesn't taste good to me. Make the decision with my mind, and I act upon it. Edwards goes on to essentially say that moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination they have at the moment of that choice, okay? Think about that. Moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination they have at the moment of that choice. The Calvinist believes in free will in this sense. Man always does what he wants to do. Man always does what he wants to do. Now that might surprise some of you to hear that. That's what a Calvinist thinks, but it's true. Man always acts according to the strongest inclination that he has at the moment of that decision. So when you sin, you are acting according to the strongest inclination that you have in that moment of that decision. When you decide to be kind to somebody, you're making that decision because it's what you want to do the most in that moment. This is always the case. Every decision you make, you make it because it is what you want to do most in that moment. It could be an evil decision. It could be a righteous decision. But we take the information in and we decide what we want, what we're inclined to, and we act according. And then as a Christian, of course, we don't want to sin, 
but temptation presents itself. And then you, in fact, may decide in that moment to commit that sin. But you do so because that moment, in that moment, the desire to sin was the greatest desire that you had in your heart. And so someone would say, well, what if I get, I'm going down the street and a man walks up and he pulls a gun on me. And he says, give me your wallet or I'll shoot you. And you say, doesn't really have much of a choice there. But he does have a choice. He does have a choice. His will is constrained, okay? He only has two options right now, wallet or get shot. But he has two choices, right? And he makes that decision because he either decides, I would prefer to live right now, so here's my wallet. Or even if he doesn't give him the wallet and he resists, he makes that decision because he thinks it's best for whatever reason to resist this or fight this guy. Maybe he doesn't want to give him the wallet. Maybe he wants to teach him a lesson. But we always act according to the strongest inclination of our heart. And so John Calvin, when he was talking about this topic, he essentially says that if by free will we mean that fallen man has the choice to choose what he wants, then yes, man has free will. But if we mean that man in his fallen state has the moral power and the ability to choose God or to choose righteousness, then that is far too great of a definition of free will. So to reiterate and to make it clear, if we mean by free will that man, in his fallen state, he has the ability to choose what he wants, he has free will. So then where's the rub? The rub is in this. Because man is so sinful, and that no one seeks God, no one is good, and man does what he wants, what he wants is he chooses to sin. No man wants to choose God. That's what Scripture says. No one seeks God. So no one chooses God on his own. He does what he wants. Which, if left to himself, that would be to choose to sin and to reject God. A sinner sins freely. A sinner rejects Jesus because he wants to reject Jesus. And he does so freely. And so if man is ever going to choose God, and if he's ever going to believe the gospel, then man must have the desire to do so. He has to have that desire. But the problem is, and the question is, we need to determine, how does man ever get that desire? If the man in his fallen state doesn't have the, the capacity, the ability to choose God, then how does he ever choose God? And so this is where the discussion on the fallenness of man comes in. Now, I freely admit that I haven't used a ton of Scripture so far. And I've laid out what Jonathan Edwards says and what John Calvin says and what R.C. Sproul says. And those are godly men, and we should take seriously their words. But it doesn't really matter what they say this stuff if it doesn't show up in Scripture. And so let's turn to the Bible. John 6, 65. It should be on the screen as well. 
And Jesus said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, excuse me, unless it is granted him by the Father. Read that again. This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now I remember studying this first, and the others will, that we'll use in a moment, and I will walk to you through how this was taught to me, and I hope you will find it as helpful as I did. Jesus begins by saying, no one. Now this is what we would call a universal negative. It's all inclusive, no exceptions. No human being can do whatever is going to follow. That's his claim. No one. The next word is can. Now in English, or at least in America, what word is can often mistaken for? May, right? You asked your parents, you asked your mom, you asked your teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And they say, well, I sure hope you can. But the word in the Greek, it's less ambiguous than it is in our language. It has to do with the ability. So when Jesus says no one can, Jesus is saying no one has the ability to. Okay? That's the meaning. No one has the ability to do whatever's going to follow. And he continues to say that nobody, no one has the ability to come to me. So up until this point of the verse, no man anywhere, not some, not a few, no man has the ability to come to Jesus. No man can come to me unless. Okay, so now we have an acceptive clause. We have an exception to the rule. And the unless points to what you would call in philosophy a, a necessary condition. So now there's a prerequisite. Something must happen in first in order for this other thing to happen. So if man is going to come to Jesus, there must be a necessary condition met before the man has the ability to come to him. And in this verse, that condition is that Jesus states is that unless it is granted to him by the Father, in your translation, in your Bible, it might say that it's given to him or unless the Father enables him. And that's still a little bit unclear because those words don't all mean the exact same thing. And so we're not totally sure what this is that's happening. But something has to happen. The Father has to do something in order for us to come to Jesus. But there's also the other issue that we have to deal with, which is the fact that just because a necessary condition is met, it doesn't guarantee that the result that we're hoping for is actually going to happen. So in logic, there's something called a necessary condition, right? Which we just discussed, and then there's sufficient condition. Let's talk about that real quick. A sufficient condition is something that if it is met, it is guaranteed to have that result. It must be true. So these concepts 
or taught to me by like the illustration of a fire. If you want to build a fire, a necessary condition is oxygen. You have to have oxygen. But just because you have oxygen does not mean that you have a fire. And I'm not a scientist, but if you light a match and you put it up against a piece of paper and you have all the other necessary conditions that you need for a fire, then you have a sufficient condition for this paper to catch fire. Does that make sense? Necessary, you need it, but it doesn't guarantee it. So a man cannot come to Christ unless God does something. But we still need clarity on what God does. Now remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the verse. He said, this is why I told you. In John 65, this is why I told you. So if you're reading that, you think, well, well, what did he already tell them? And so you kind of look back. And you see in verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless, pretty similar statement, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so now we can confidently say that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him to Jesus. Now, Calvinists and Arminians both believe this to be true. It's not as if an Arminian just read John 6 for the first time and was like, I never read this verse. Totally caught me off guard. I guess I have to be a Calvinist. They both believe this is true. And so the debate is over, what does it mean that God draws someone? Arminians, or those that hold the semi-Pelagian view of predestination, interpret this verse to mean that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father woos him or entices him or appeals to him. And so God attracts that man to himself in some way. He hears the gospel because God has enticed him and he's wooed him by the Holy Spirit and he hears the gospel. And then the man can decide if he wants to be saved. But the point, the key point, is that the man always has the option. The man has the option. He can decide after he's been wooed or drawn, does he want to follow God? Does he not want to follow God? That's the Arminian view. But it probably won't be shocking for you to hear that the Calvinistic view or the Augustinian view claims that this idea of the Father drawing us to Christ is much more than just wooing. And so to answer the question... What does it mean to draw? We should look at how the New Testament uses the same Greek word elsewhere. So in James 2, the verse will be on the screen, it says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? And I remember when I was taught this, the professor looked at us and he said, Can you guess... Which word is the same Greek word as draw? And if you're thinking drag, you're correct. Now, let's read this verse with the Arminian interpretation of draw. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who woo you into court? But let's keep seeing if there's other places. 
Acts 16, 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before their rulers. Take another wild guess. Which word is the same Greek word as draw? They seized Paul. It's dragged. They seized Paul and Silas, and they wooed them into the marketplace. Now, Kittle's Theological Dictionary in the New Testament, it defines this Greek word as to compel with irresistible superiority. And those who wrote the the dictionary, which is probably the go-to dictionary for New Testament, they were not Calvinistic in any mean, but they were honest about this word. It means to compel with irresistible superiority. Drag. Now, I don't know why the translators have decided to translate this word in John 6 as draw, Maybe it's because it sounds too harsh to say that no one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me unless the Father drags him or compels him. But the idea in the verse is clear, and it's sufficient to close this whole debate. No man can come to Jesus unless the Father drags him or compels him. And when God draws a man like that, he does so irresistibly, just like Paul and Silas irresistibly had to come. We are dragged to Christ by the Father. And that makes sense if you understand that we're totally dead in our trespasses. If you have a right view of our fallenness, you know, I was totally dead in my trespasses and my sins in which I once walked. If you were only kind of dead, just a little bit dead, then... The idea of maybe you could be wooed and then you could kind of decide, that might be possible. But if we hate God, and if our desires are totally against God, and we always choose what we want, then the Father must change those desires and bring us to himself. And this is how Scripture speaks of our salvation. But let's keep going with more passages. In John 3, 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So again, unless, necessary condition. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the person must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. That is clear. It's important that you understand that. Okay, I'm saying it multiple times because you've got to get it clear. The person must be born again first before he can see the kingdom of God. Being born again precedes seeing the kingdom of God. Very important. So a man being regenerated, being born again, precedes seeing the kingdom of God. And so Jesus goes on in verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So being born again is a prerequisite or a necessary condition to enter the kingdom of God. And so this is where the Arminian position, it gets it backwards. They have people choosing to follow Jesus before they're regenerated. They have man reacting and responding to the wooing of this kingdom. They're cooperating with the Holy Spirit. And then they're choosing to enter the kingdom. And then they're born again. They debate it in their mind. They kind of decide, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? Yes, I think I want to follow Jesus, so I'm going to place my faith in Jesus, and then I'm going to become born again. 
But the Bible talks about our, sa- our salvation completely the other way. God regenerates, makes us born again, and then we have faith. Not we have faith, and so then we just decide to become regenerated. The Arminian position has people who are yet to be born again, seeing and choosing the king and the kingdom of God. And the Calvinistic Calvinistic position is the other way around and in line with scripture. Regeneration precedes faith. And it must be this way because man in his flesh cannot choose God. Real quick, Paul in, in Romans 8, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, and to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, you cannot please God. This is what happened because of Adam's sin. We live in the flesh, and those who are in the flesh cannot, and they're not able to, they never could be, they cannot please God unless the Father drags them or compels them, and he is regenerated, and he's born again, and then only then, when he has the Spirit of God, and he's living in the Spirit, and he's been given the gift of faith, then he can please God. Now, it, it pains me to have to skip Romans 9, but I don't have time. So, it's probably the most robust chapter on, in the Bible that deals with predestination. But I really want to get to the answering the question, why does this matter to me? So I would encourage you, if this is new to you, to read Romans 9. Because if you read Romans 9, it's going to help you. You're going to have to ask some questions about your salvation that you hadn't really thought through before. And when you try to search for those answers, you're going to learn more about this. And so... Please read Romans 9 if these truths are new to you. But for the sake of time, I need to move on. Why does any of this matter? Is this just for pastors and nerdy people who like to read theology books and debate about it? Do these truths have any practical value in the life that I lead? And the answer to that question is yes. These truths matter to your daily life. Let me show you. One, having a correct view of our fallenness increases our gratitude towards God and it protects us from man-centered substitutes for our salvation. So I've already said this, but I want to reiterate it. You weren't just kind of dead in your trespasses. So then at one point you were kind of alive enough to make that decision to follow Christ. You were totally dead in your trespasses. You were a dead man walking. You hated God. You were an enemy of God. He had no obligation to choose you or to save you. You were totally incapable of choosing him and you didn't want to in the first place. And if you know this to be true, your thankfulness and your dependence on God for your salvation grows immensely. If you think of you, you, that you were just kind of bad, well, then God's grace, it's cheapened. 
God's choice is cheapened. The Arminian position leads to pride. I can give you resources from John Piper and Jonathan Edwards and J.I. Packer, all who have argued, and they've shown that throughout history, the Arminian position always leads to universalism and Unitarianism. Now, that is not to say that someone who's Arminian is not a Christian. Okay? I've already said that last week. There's people that we love who have held that position. But I am saying that if you show me a church that starts to believe these Arminian doctrines almost for certain in a generation or two, that church will begin to believe some more serious foolishness. So these truths keep us humble and they increase our thankfulness to God for our salvation. You know, you can't like, when you know these truths to be true, what happens is you start, re- you start singing these songs differently. Okay? So he's saying, he will hold me fast. And these words mean something different to a Calvinist than they do to an Arminian. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. You might be thinking, well, how is that true? How does, this, how does that actually make sense? Well, let me, let me show you this through Scripture real fast. Knowing that my salvation is completely dependent on God for the choosing, for the regenerating, and for the keeping me makes me more secure in my salvation. There are a number of you in our church who struggle with your assurance of salvation. You wonder, am I really saved? Am I, will I remain in the faith? Or will one day I decide I'm done with this? And that's not a new thing. Lots of Christians have struggled with that. Arminians and Calvinists alike. But I would argue that much of the time, those fears and thoughts that you have, they come from a heart that is reasoning more like an Arminian and not as a Calvinist in how Scripture speaks. So you look at your life, and you take a couple steps forward, then you take three steps back. So you thought you were doing pretty well, but now you feel really bad because you did that one thing, or you did that five things. You take two steps forward, you take one step back, and, you, and then after that, then you did something really bad, and you wonder, like, am I even a Christian? And what guarantee is there that I'm not going to just ditch this in 15 years? But that is because you think you play some significant role in debating or deciding for yourself in your own strength if you want to follow Christ or if you don't want to follow Christ. But your strength is so weak. And that's why you get so anxious about whether or not you're going to make it to the end of this Christian life. But if you believe that God, if you believe that it is God who works in you, and he's the one who chooses you from before the foundations of the world, and he's the one who regenerates you, and he gives you the gift of faith by grace alone, and you had nothing to do with any of that, nothing to do with gaining your salvation, it's totally dependent on God, well then verses like this in John 6 give you so much help. They give you so much stability. John 6, 37 
all that the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God is the one who keeps you in the faith, not yourself. If it was dependent on you, you would not remain a Christian. Maybe you've heard a pastor say, if I could lose my salvation, I would. But Scripture teaches, Scripture teaches that those whom God chooses, he keeps. This theological concept is called the perseverance of the states, perseverance of the saints. You'll persevere to the end, not because you're great, but because God keeps his promises. This perseverance is something that God does. So the Christian, you can stop fretting about whether or not you're going to make it. Thinking tomorrow, maybe I'll just decide to leave Christ. The point is that if God chose you before the foundations of the world because it had nothing to do with you, then he will not abandon you. Well, I have lots of sin. I struggle with this a lot. Well, so did David. So did lots of Christians throughout history, and God did not abandon them. The Calvinists rest in his salvation, knowing that he was dead in his trespasses, and that God started their salvation, and he has promised to bring it to completion. Right? Philippians 1.6 means so much for a Calvinist. And I'm sure that he who began a good work in you he began it, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is why this truth matters. Real quick, a couple more. I'll just say, as you study these truths and you think upon the sovereignty of God, and you think about the sovereignty of God correctly, your whole world kind of explodes. You start reading these songs. Like I said, when the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful past. For my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. These truths help us praise God correctly, rightly, and more fully. These truths help you understand who God is and how he acts. The more that you remember that God chose you in him before the foundations of the world, the more your praise will grow for him. The more that you will see God giving you, the more that you see that God's giving you grace is totally outside of your control and something that he just does out of the joy and the goodwill of his heart according to his purposes, the more you'll understand the heart of God accurately and it'll grow your love for God. Understanding God correctly is vital for a sweet relationship with him. If you, misunderstand, if you misunderstand your wife at a foundational level, there's obviously going to be issues. 
And that relationship is never going to be as sweet or as close as it could be. And the same is true about these truths. If we misunderstand these truths or we think they're insignificant, then so much of our relationship with God will be misconstrued or warped wickedly at the worst or at best be lacking. Well, I should stop there. I realize there's questions that you might have about these things. This leads to lots of questions. But remember, I told you these truths are not learned in two weeks. These truths are learned over many, 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 many weeks, many months, many days, many years. And so ask your questions. Please ask your questions. Read Romans 9 if this is new for you. It's going to lead to a bunch of questions. What does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Why did God love Jacob but hate Esau? What does that mean? How does it mean that God could hate Esau? Doesn't God love everybody? All these questions that you're going to run into in Romans 9. And if this is new for you, that will be wonderful for you to read and then bring your questions. We'll be happy to talk to you. If you've already believed this stuff, then I hope it encourages you to remember that your salvation has nothing to do with you. It's completely on God from the beginning all the way to the end. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder of our fallenness. Thank you for reminding us that we cannot choose you in our own strength. Reminding us that once our desires were so contrary to you and that we didn't love you and we didn't want anything to do with you. And instead of just returning that favor and being done with us because we wanted to be done with you and we wanted to reject you, you intervened because you loved us. Even while we were your enemies, you loved us and you sent your son to die for us and to pay for our sins. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for choosing us. We know that we do not deserve it, God. We have many sins still in our lives. And so all we can do is come here and be amazed that you would be so kind and merciful to us and that you would have mercy upon these people in this church. Father, we praise you and we give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.